Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and Geico is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com or contact your local agent today. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm, in fact, Kevin Randall. I'll be joined momentarily by Robert Young, and we're going to talk a bit about the Kecksburg UFO crash. But before we get into that, one of the things that have kind of blown up in the last week or so is this idea that Albert Einstein was involved in some fashion in the Roswell investigation, that he and an assistant were taken to a base in the Southwest and uh, shown the craft and the bodies and engaged in all kinds of activities like that. A number of us have been trying to pin that down a little bit better, we found that uh, Len Springfield had reported this in 1994, and I've posted to my blog the entirety of what, what uh, Len had found, and it's slightly in conflict with what's been said lately about this. Um, there's also a posting in my blog where I discuss the problems with the security clearances. If, if we concede Roswell was extraterrestrial, then we must also concede that it would have been highly classified. And Einstein probably would have had security clearances of sufficient magnitude to allow him to visit. But his assistant that he took with them, who said she had a security clearance as well, but we don't know the level of the clearance. So we don't know what that means. And she suggested in her interview things that would have excluded her from being involved in depth. Um, has been looked at in depth, as I say, and there are some red flags there. And there's a posting analyzing this on my blog as well. And I know there's others looking in other aspects of it was Einstein in Roswell in July of 1947, although she said originally it was a base in the desert Southwest, which encompasses a great deal of, of territory. So it may not have been Roswell that they allegedly went to. But there are some real problems with the story and there's any number of us looking at it and there's been some interest in the internet about it in the last uh, week or so. So if you get a chance and you're interested in this, just type Einstein and Roswell or something like that into your search engine and you'll uh, come up with the stories. I think uh, Anthony Megalia broke the story on the 1st of October. Of course, Len Stringfield had done it before. I think Don Ecker in UFO Magazine did something about it. I talked to Don about it, but he was not feeling well. He had just had surgery and wasn't aware where it might have been in the UFO Magazine. And there were a number of other things that came out uh, between 1994 when Len published this stuff and the things that came out just last week. So that's something we're looking into and I hope to have more information about it uh, in the very near future. Like I said, I'm going to be joined by Robert Young, Bob Young, who is a lifelong amateur astronomer who was a planetarian, planetarium educator at the State Museum of Pennsylvania Planetarium for 29 years before his retirement. I think I'd bite a state in that job forever. It sounds like a fun one. He is active with the Astronomical Society of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Naylor Observatory, where he has taught public adult observational astronomy course for more than 40 years. Robert received a BA in English in 1966 from the Elizabethtown College and was a teacher, educator, and a public relations professional. His Kecksburg information, and we're gonna be talking about Kecksburg, 
can be found in the UFO Invasion, Chapter 22, which is a book published by Prometheus in 1979, and Tim Prenti's magazine, Zane, online magazine, Sunlight, Volume 3, Number 6. And you can find, well, just type Tim Printy into um, your search engine with uh, sunlight, and you'll probably get to it. His uh, website is www.ufo.com, all lowercase. Robert Young, Bob, welcome to A Different Perspective. Good day. <laughs> I was hoping for something a little more eloquent than that. <laughs> um, well, we, I haven't seen you for a while. We've been, I was on your show some years ago, so glad to see you again. Well, well, and we've 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 joined the 21st century, as you can see. We're yeah, horrible, isn't it? <laughs> we're doing video, not the way science fiction envisioned it in the 1960s, but we're certainly into the video phone calls and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, this was inspired. I think there was some discussion about Kecksburg over the last few weeks in various arenas on the internet, and I thought, well, if we want to get a different perspective on Kecksburg, one of the people to talk to is you. Can you give me just the basics of the Kecksburg case? What, what happened and that sort of thing? Okay, on December 9th, 1965, about 4.43 in the evening, it was still daylight. The sun was just setting. Uh, there's an intensely bright fireball was seen from 10 states and Ontario. And uh, about 17 places, people reported it either crashed or uh, had debris landed, but nothing was ever found. And in cases where there's an extremely bright meteor like that, uh, if you're in the outer edges of the viewing area, things seem to go behind the trees or whatever, which is accounted for that. Uh, but, but, but Stan Gordon, among others, have suggested that what fell at Kecksburg was some kind of an extraterrestrial spacecraft as opposed to something that was natural. Right. Well, uh, why Kecksburg was a little bit different than the other cases. Um, you mean the other locations? Where the, the other locations, yeah. Uh, during the Kecksburg, well, first of all, uh, Gemini 6 and 7 were in orbit that day. It was the first rendezvous of manned spacecraft, so there was a lot of interest in space at the time. Uh, during, the during the event, uh, there was uh, on KDKA Pittsburgh's 50,000-watt station, um, Frank Edwards, who was a no well-known lecturer and author of books on flying saucers and UFOs, was promoting a lecture he was going to give in Pittsburgh the next day. So during his show, this fireball appeared. He said the, the uh, switchboards lit up, people called in. At the time, he concluded it was a meteor. But uh, this went on at the time the event happened. So in, in Kecksburg, uh, there were a couple kids who were outside. They told her mother that they saw a bright star on fire or a cloud in the sky. She went out and saw a smoke train in the sky, which lasted for maybe a half hour or so. But she didn't went and found her kids and then didn't find, think much of it. Then she turned her radio on, apparently, and heard the uh, radio program about UFOs. So she called her local radio station uh, in Greensburg and uh, told them that she thought she saw something, some little smoke coming up out of the woods. And the uh, radio station uh, news director called the state police, put something out on the AP, and that started it. Uh, so but wasn't, weren't there military people involved as well? There were state police that went into the Kecksburg area. There were military personnel that went into the Kecksburg yeah. area. In those days, you know, the Air Force investigated UFOs. And uh, Air Force officers at various air bases were assigned to do this. The nearest air base was a radar station, a SAGE radar station uh, near the Pittsburgh airport. Uh, the 662nd Radar Squadron was there. And so they sent three people, and this was in the National Archives in the Blue Book records. In fact, I think he sent me some of this stuff years ago. Um, so they sent three people over. Now the first search uh, when the state police came over and some firemen, uh, 
state police blocked off two ends of a road because or the, because they were afraid the they needed fire trucks to come in in case there was a fire or something. So they conducted the first search uh, in the early evening and uh, didn't find anything. By that time, the, the three Air Force guys had gotten there and um, there were reports of intermittent blue lights in the woods, flashing lights. So they went, uh, they said, well, let's go back again. So they conducted a second search and this lasted until after midnight. So the, by this time, a lot of people were there standing around in neighboring properties, uh, got a good look at the area, but they could see the search go on and that was about it. Now there were claims that, uh, that the army was involved because a local newspaper interviewed a, one of the fire policemen and he said, well, the army engineers are coming. Well, the 662nd radar squadron had a large array of antennas on a hilltop on the US Army engineers facility at Oakdale. And this is where the, the mythology about the army being involved, I think came from. So- but Didn't some uh, of the witnesses, didn't some of the witnesses claim there were army personnel there that, that were armed? Well, this is years later. So in 1965, there weren't any reports like that. Uh, and, the whole thing sort of uh, petered out with the news reports that, you know, it was a meteor, there wasn't anything found. Uh, and then about 14 years later, uh, there was another uh, radio program in KDK, John Cygnus, both, both programs. And there were a couple of UFO investigators and uh, a couple of people who were claimed uh, abductees were on this show about UFOs. And uh, they started talking about Kex, about this incident. And four people called in, a couple of them said that they had seen lights that night in the woods, that was about it. And uh, two other people, one of them said he was the fire chief uh, and he had seen uh, a truck, a large truck with a covered object on it and this sort of thing. And he told this story for about 10 years. Uh, well, he wasn't the fire chief at all. Now, he was a fire chief later in that company. And in fact, he was the president of the fire company uh, when uh, there was a television program done about it. But was this very so sort of just took off from there. Was, was, this a, was this a volunteer fire department? A volunteer fire department? Or yes. Yeah. Was, not like a city of no, finance. No, no. It was all volunteers. Yeah. So uh, what I'm... What, I guess what we need to say here is the, the, the story is that it was some kind of an alien craft that allegedly crashed, that people saw it in the air and saw it turn in the sky. Yeah. And that um, this acorn shaped object was then trucked out of the area sometime after midnight on, uh, in 1965. And Stan Gordon, who's investigated this thing since I guess at the very beginning, uh, suggested um, I'm trying to trying to get it in my mind here. But Stan Gordon was suggesting from almost the very beginning that it was some kind of a, a spacecraft as opposed to something natural or, or a, a Russian launched uh, possible reentry of, of some kind of a satellite that failed to achieve orbit. Yeah, um, a couple of days after the incident, Ivan Sanderson, who was a well-known writer. Uh, at the time on UFO subjects uh, sent out a story that was carried in a lot of newspapers, some of them out West, that uh, he cited two eyewitness accounts of the fireball in the sky, claimed that the thing uh, turned and maneuvered. Well, he, he didn't talk about all of the other witnesses uh, that, uh, and his, his, computations of speed were off by 16 miles per second instead of miles per minute. Uh, and at any rate, this was in the newspapers and uh, sort of got the story of something that wasn't a meteor going. For years, uh, Stan followed up on this and some other people. At any rate, um, 
there was a Russian uh, Venera spacecraft to Venus, Venera 3. Uh, it was also known as Cosmos 96, which had been launched a couple of, almost two weeks before, but it failed to get out of parking orbit. Uh, apparently the missile, ex the rocket exploded or something. Let me and interrupt you. Let me interrupt you there because I'm gonna have to take a break. Uh, so we have a, a Russian space vehicle in, a, in orbit or in a parking orbit, which may have contributed to this whole thing. Uh, let me just say this. Um, there are many fine programs on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Take a look at the website at xzbn.net, which I sometimes get wrong for some bizarre reason. Uh, take a look at the listings along the side and you'll find uh, things that interest you. We will be back right after this talking about the Kicksburg UFO crash with Bob Young. So please stick around. with Robert Young. We're talking about the Kicksburg UFO crash, and you'll notice that neither of us are wearing masks, but we are social distancing. He's in a whole different state than I am. I happen to be in a state of confusion, and I think he may be too. I don't know. But anyhow, we're separated. We're distance. We're doing our distancing properly, maintaining our distance. When we went away, we were talking about the Cosmos 96 vehicle, which I guess was a space probe that was going to go to Venus, but didn't make it. And there was some discussion that this might have been what fell or what they saw in the Kecksburg area. Uh, it's now up to you, <laughs> Bob, to take it from there. Okay. Well, Cosmos 96 re-entered about 13 hours earlier over central Canada. And so for years, this confused the issue. Uh, and, uh, in the late 80s, uh, some local UFO investigators out Western Pennsylvania had, uh, they would go to the Greensburg Mall and other places and had exhibits. And they were displaying pictures of, uh, of Cosmos 96, but these weren't actually photographs. These were drawings by a Soviet artist. It was a propaganda picture. And so they would just show this so at one of these sessions, a guy comes out of the crowd. His name's James Romansky. And he said, well, I saw it. Uh, and he describes this uh, acorn-shaped object, which is what the artist's conception was, with, thing, with uh, hieroglyphics around the outside, which in the Russian uh, painting was, you know, a propaganda message. And so... Uh, Stan Gordon and some of the others think, well, maybe he knows what's, maybe he saw something. So they ask him where it happened and he described the location. And that was the same location that they thought that this uh, uh, recovery occurred. So they thought they had something there. The thing was the location was all wrong. In 1965, the local newspaper had had uh, published the location as a half mile from Kecksburg. In fact, the actual search and events occurred a mile from Kecksburg in another farm. So in fact, some of the locals there used to tell me that's how they knew some of these witnesses weren't really there because they were on some, the farm next door. But uh, so that sort of got that story off for years. Romanski was an often quoted so-called witness. He said he saw the thing in the woods and everything. So that sort of got the, got the folkloric part of the story going. But there was still the woman with her kids uh, who, who initiated the phone call, said that there had been military personnel at her house and these were armed military personnel. I got that right? That I don't know. I don't and know that, about that account, but, but there were no accounts, no accounts of armed people. Well, first of all, the state police were there. Well, and they would have been about armed. 25 state police from the Greensburg barracks were out there. But, uh, you know, 
But those st uh, stories like that of armed troops, of a vehicle and this sort of thing, none of those stories existed in 1965. They were never published. There was reporters from different newspapers out there, even television stations, radio stations. None of that stuff was reported in 1965. Only many years later, these details involving armed troops, convoys of machine gun, armed jeeps, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, this stuff came up years later. But hasn't Stan Gordon and his team found other eyewitnesses, people who saw it in the sky, who saw it in the woods, and that sort of thing? I mean, it's not just this Romansky guy. It's a whole bunch of other people who have come forward who seem to be more credible than, than Romansky. Well, you know, something did happen and that night and there are many people who saw it in the sky and people were over during the search and things. There were crowds there. There were photographs of crowds of people standing up in the hillside. And uh, so, uh, but I dug up accounts and talked to people. I had at one point, I had about 200 accounts of people that, and uh, only a small group of people were telling the stories armed military, armed convoys, actual object itself. Uh, the other people, all of their accounts could have been explained by the meteor, by the searches that night. There were two searches, went on until after midnight uh, and that sort of thing. So, and, and the strange, these unusual parts of the story, uh, they all appeared years later. Well, what about the stories, uh, the eyewitnesses who said the object turned, they saw it turn, physically turn, which would rule out a meteor, of course. Well, yeah, but this came from, from Ivan Sanderson's article about the, the thing uh, changing direction. In fact, uh, he ignored the fact that there were many witnesses. And what he did is he took witnesses in two locations and he assumed that the thing was there. Not that they could see the fireball from hundreds of miles all around. That was where he got off the track. And uh, it's interesting, I pointed this out once uh, to a local newspaper there. Uh, and I said, well, no one's reported the object, you know, the fireball in the sky, and then later the thing coming closer. Well, one of these small group of people, suddenly he saw it, it circled the town, according to him. So these stories just transmogrify as time goes on to match, you know, the, the mythological story. But weren't there, weren't there stories of debris falling in various locations in Pennsylvania? Uh, and, and I mean, there were contemporary newspaper articles where they oh, yeah. talked about that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that anything was ever uh, recovered where, uh, I think in uh, near Lapeer, Michigan, uh, they found some uh, radar chaff, apparently. Uh, and they had some uh, from uh, military exercises dropped by aircraft. But they'd also found this about a year before. So that was the only thing that I ever read that uh, anybody actually identified something specific. People saw rocks, found rocks in the field and looked like clinkers from a, from a furnace. But you know, they're typical for media reports where people think it disappeared right up beyond the trees. And in fact, it's hundreds of miles away. Well, if this is a bolide, wouldn't there have been uh, debris, a meteoric debris found at some point? Was, was there, there anything? There, that... might, there might have been. In fact, there was a search as uh, Canadian astronomers did a research, but there was snow up in Ontario. Uh, they never found anything. But it just, it, it, it came down very steeply uh, over Lake Erie and disappeared just about at the southern shoreline of Ontario. Uh, never found any any debris. You know, it's 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 a different type of thing. If you're down in the Southwest, in New Mexico or places, it's uh, relatively easy to de determine that some rock is different, and a lot of meteorites have been found on there. I can tell you in Pennsylvania, there's almost we have so many forests in the state that uh, there've been very few meteor uh, recoveries in Pennsylvania at all, just because of the type of terrain. 
does a smoke train from a meteor, I mean, a smoke train from a meteor is a, is a common occurrence, as I understand it, or yeah. maybe not all that common, but a, a known, known phenomenon. Uh, do they persist as long as that? Uh, well, you said 30 minutes. Do they persist well, they're way long? up there. There may be 150,000 feet or higher up, uh, miles up, and they'll persist sometimes for a half hour or more. Would and the wind... With the, the upper winds, atmospheric winds, they may change in their shape and things. I was going to say, wouldn't the, the winds aloft, wouldn't that uh, create a smoke train that looks like it's um, the, the, the object left it was turning and twisting around as it moved through the atmosphere? Would that be a perceptional problem? Well, it might be. Somebody might get the idea that it was moving when it was, it's really the winds moving the, you know, the train. But uh, it's possible somebody would think that. Is the idea that this was meteoric in origin, is that um, well accepted in, I guess, the skeptical community that, that, that there's nothing that they look at that, that would suggest to them that it might be something else? Uh, I don't think in the skeptical community, no. Uh, it was a rather, it was a typical bright bolide astron uh, uh, meteor. Uh, and there was, there was a scientific paper, there were two uh, astronomers from Michigan, uh, Von Del Chamberlain and David J. Krauss, who uh, they found two photographers in Michigan uh, who had taken pictures of the train in the sky seconds after the meteor. Uh, and they used that to, to uh, triangulate the location of the meteor, its apparent speed. And uh, they published a paper in the journal of the, uh, of the uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada back in 67. And uh, they showed that this object was coming in steeply over the lake. Uh, they projected its orbit back to between Mars and Jupiter, which is the asteroid belt where many bright meteors like this come from. And it was moving in prograde, which means almost everything in the solar system is rotating in one direction around the sun, uh, except for a few comets and things that are going the other way. Uh, and so it was also in prograde motion. So didn't seem to be anything that unusual to them. Well, here's an interesting point. You said there were two, they found two photographers in Michigan who I guess independently photographed the yes. smoke train. Yeah. Um, that smoke train would have been, I was confused about how high it might have been, 50 or 60 miles in the, into the atmosphere. Would that be correct? Uh, it, the end of the train was about 14 miles high. It ended 14 and it may have begun about 20 or 30 miles high. So, you know. so it would have been visible over a wide area Yes. if it was thick enough and dark enough against the sky for them, for people to yeah. see. It. Uh, what, what, what I'm thinking here is, and of course, UFOs are usually much closer to the ground, but here we have an object photograph that is extremely rare. And we have two photographs from two separate independent sources. We never seem to get anything like that with UFOs. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, this was, as, fact, as a matter of fact, uh, in the uh, report of the University of Colorado project, which sort of ended the project Blue Book, they actually mentioned this incident as an example of something that would be, it would potentially had millions of witnesses because of the large, you know, the large area covered where uh, observers could be. So uh, just pure luck that this thing was so high up and it was seen by so many people wide. Now, the other thing was it was, the, the sun was setting, so it was bright sky. And this thing was brighter than the full moon. So it wasn't as if it was a nighttime meteor where everyone would have noticed the whole sky lighting up. Well, I want to point out here that, that the object was very, very high and the most UFO reports would get there not quite at that altitude. So the potential audience or the potential number of witnesses is much smaller. I just always yeah. that we, we never seem to have gotten a UFO photograph or a series of photographs taken from independent witnesses where we could triangulate, although that might be changing here. Uh, yeah, everybody's got a camera now uh, in their phone. Uh, 
didn't have that in 1965. Absolutely, absolutely. But from what you're saying, and, and we'll get back to this in a minute because I'm about to run out of time here, but um, the idea that Kecksburg was something, I was going to say extraterrestrial, of course it was, uh, but artificial uh, stems from Frank Edwards and Ivan T. Sanderson doing articles or talking about that in that environment, in that time frame, so that it kind of masked uh, what had happened, uh, which might have been seen more natural if we hadn't had those two entities in yeah, the area was, at that time. Yeah, it was a, it was a media event from yes. the very well, beginning. Let me, you know, let me interrupt here uh, because we're going to have to take a break. So you've been listening to a different perspective on the Exome Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this. So please stick around. back with Robert Young, Bob Young, and you're watching us on the Exxon Broadcast Network. We've been talking about Kecksburg and UFOs. And I, the point I was getting to just before we had to take our break was that we had one of those confluences of, of factors that came about. We had the, the object in the sky. We had Frank Edwards preparing for a lecture in the area. We had Ivan T. Sanderson coming into the area to do the research. We've had uh, a number of people who were there that night coming forward, talking about what they had seen and, and what they had done. Granted, much of this happened, uh, the, the witnesses coming forward happened much later. It may have been influenced by the stories that they've been told, but are you... Robert Young, absolutely positive that what was seen was a natural phenomenon. I believe so, sure, yeah. I am, yeah. And you base that on? On the scientific research that was done showing that the, of the meteor train, photographs, the work, and, the many, and there were many uh, eyewitness accounts in 1965 that support this. Many people, one uh, astronomer uh, or geophysicist had interviewed people immediately after the event. And he had over 100, 100 120 uh, witnesses. South shore of Lake Erie, they saw the thing disappear at the, on the, uh, at the uh, horizon over the lake. There were pilots. Well, wait, let me, let me interrupt here because I think you made an interesting point. This, this is geophysicist yeah. was far north of Kecksburg no, he and, was, they saw it, and they saw the thing disappear even further to the north. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. He interviewed witnesses in the late and the uh, north uh, shore of the lake in northern Ohio. They saw the thing disappear to the north of the lake. Uh, there were about a couple dozen reports the FAA had received from pilots so they knew the time. There was also uh, a seismograph at the Ypsilanti, University of Michigan, which uh, recorded the sonic boom. So they know the, the location that happened. Interestingly, there was even a, there was a pilot in Erie, at Erie, who reported it disappeared at the horizon to the west over the lake. In fact, the 662nd radar squadron sent three guys up to Erie to interview him about that. The UFO proponents never mention this at all, uh, you know, because it doesn't match their story that they want to. Well, you mentioned a sonic boom. Are sonic booms something that are common to uh, bolides? Uh, there, yeah, there might be, uh, but they're not as, you know, they wouldn't be heard uh, hundreds of miles away. But uh, when the thing breaks up uh, at the sound, you know, it's slowing down they'll make a boom. And often when there, when there are sonic booms involved, there are uh, pieces of meteoroids that re reach the earth. Um, well, I'm wondering now, I know that Leslie Keene did a big investigation of this and 
number of years ago, working with Stan Gordon and talking to people at NASA uh, and concluded that this was something that was covered up by whomever covers these things up, by the military or the government yeah. in some fashion. Uh, what would you say to people like that? It said, well, we've got this information that suggests something more uh, exotic. Well, I remember that television, basically she was, uh, she like built herself as, a, as an independent invest, as a uh, journalist, but she was basically promoting this television program. And uh, she had a press conference and uh, they talked about these Freedom of Information Act requests they had sent to NASA, to uh, uh, the army and this sort of thing. Uh, and they didn't get the results they wanted. Well, then they send another request to the army and because they, the army said, we don't have anything. They said, well, there's gotta be a cover up because we know they were there. What's the one organization that they never, or they never said that they sent a freedom of information request to? The US Air Force. It would all have been in the National Archives and the Blue Book records, the phone calls, the whole story. So um, that's my response to that. Uh, I've, they, combed, they, I've combed through the Project Blue Book file. Yeah. I've seen the, the newspaper clippings from that time frame. I've talked to Stan Gordon and that sort of thing. Uh, and I, as I've, I've said in the past, I at once was of an opinion that there were five, four or five good UFO crash cases and Kecksburg was one of them based on the number of witnesses, based on the testimony that had been ex taken, based on the idea that um, the military responded and, and the idea that the army had been there. Obviously the state police were there. It seemed to be a solid case based on that and based on the eyewitness testimony. You mentioned one eyewitness to the object, uh, Romansky, I think it was. Weren't there others who claimed to have seen the object in the woods? There were a couple others, yeah, yeah, but not a large number. And um, all of these people who claimed that they saw either the object in the woods or military convoys or armed troops, there were also other, many other witnesses who were at the same place at the same time they said they, said they didn't see anything. So there's, you know, when it comes to witnesses, you can throw them all up. But in 1965, people weren't reporting that kind of stuff. That's the only thing. Have you combed through the newspaper articles? I mean, I understand that newspaper reports, especially right after an event happens, are sometimes badly inaccurate because they're gathering the information at, the, at that moment. And sometimes things get confused. But have you been through enough of the newspaper to see if there's any mention of that sort of thing? I mean, we know the state police was there. We know that these three guys, at least three guys from Air Force uh, personnel uh, were there. Uh, Anything to suggest other than uh, what, what Ivan Sanderson said, I think that there were armed military personnel there? No, I've never found anything in a newspaper from 60, you know, the old newspapers from 65, nope. So when they do the roundups in the newspapers, sometimes later on, these elements then appear in the stories? Um, I've never seen anything. The interesting thing is the, the article that <clears throat> in the Greensburg Tribune uh, there was an article, the early edition of it is the county edition, the out of town edition. And it mentioned the first, uh, you know, army coming, uh, they interviewed a uh, fire policeman, whatever. Uh, but in the later uh, city edition, after the search had been conducted, they said well, nothing was found. And then uh, two days later, there was a, an editorial in the paper that said their staff had investigated the and this sort of thing, concluded that, uh, you know, it was a meteor, nothing, nothing fell. And there were some bright lights there that they thought were just people taking pictures, and which is another part of the thing. The, uh, they did the search, the first search, and then by the, the Army people or the Air Force people came. And by that time, they had reports of the, of flashing blue lights in the woods. So they said, well, let's we better go back a second time. So the Air Force guys and state police went back later and they finished up after midnight 
Well, what actually happened is there were some local teenagers who were running through the woods flashing a camera strobe. I obtained a long signed statement from one of the participants that explains that. Well, that's the flashing blue light that everybody seemed to be talking about. But uh, other than that, in 1965, I never found any accounts of, of anything beyond a couple Air Force people and uh, people saying that the Army 662nd Radar Squadron was there. Well, we know that that was an Army. Well, here's my big revelation then. Well, Don Schmidt and I were doing the Roswell investigation early on in the Roswell investigation. We talked to a college professor and I, I think there may be one, one or two students around or it was his wife or somebody. And he was interested in UFOs, heard the story on the radio and went to Kecksburg that very night, arrived about four o'clock in the morning, said the town was dead, nothing going on. Uh, everything had been cleared out. You would think that there would still be something going on if it had been that sort of a event where they were bringing in a convoy and moving things out with a, a truck and that sort of thing. You'd think that it would have been somebody around, something around for them to have seen. And once I had heard that and looked at other things involved with Kecksburg, I just began to wonder just how accurate the information was. I mean, we need to look at the contemporary accounts as opposed to the things uh, said later, unless they, they are corroborated by the contemporary accounts. And I think too often we miss that sort of thing when we're doing those investigations. Uh, we're gonna have to take a break here in a few moments, but I'm gonna set up the last segment here then. Um, you've investigated any number of UFO sightings, I imagine. You've done this more than one time. Over the years, yeah, but, but none, none as extensively of Kecksburg. But in that time, have you ever come up in, to one where you were just stumped as what it could have been? Not necessarily saying it was a spacecraft, but saying, well, I've, I've exhausted the, uh, the avenues of investigation. I don't know what it was. I can't confirm or deny anything about it. No, I, I haven't really. Uh, there were some cases where it took me a few years to... Where I live uh, in Harrisburg is uh, very close to Indian Town Gap Military Reservation. And they were, for many years, they were doing a lot of training of nighttime training of helicopter uh, pilots all over the Eastern side of the country. So uh, there were a few cases there. Uh, and I eventually managed to figure out what it was. I was in the National Guard artillery out there. And uh, so, I would call out the base and tell them I was from the, the Planetarium State Museum and eventually sort of figure out its flares or something. But, uh, you know, eventually, eventually I think that I pretty much figured out what most things were. Uh, there's always a case where somebody sees a light or something. There's no, not enough information to really judge anymore, you know. The, the classic example of insufficient data for a scientific analysis. That's exactly, yeah. And I've, and I've said that for a long time, that if uh, you get up at three o'clock in the morning and you see a light crossing the sky, and it's really some private pilot with his landing lights on, but he hasn't filed a flight plan. He's just up there flying around for fun of it. The wind's blowing the wrong direction, so you hear nothing from the engine noise. Okay, you've got an anomalous light crossing the sky. Uh, under intelligence control, but you can't really define exactly what it was because there's simply not enough information. Yeah. And also, I also had to kind of smile when you talked about the helicopter night training because when I was in, we did our helicopter night training around Fort Walker, Alabama. So I imagine there was an awful lot of UFO sightings around there at that time as well, as we were learning the, uh, the ropes of flying helicopters in the dark. That sort of thing. But you've never come up with one that uh, really puzzled you that you didn't come up with some sort of an explanation. Uh, no. No, I can say that. There's a lot of, as I said, a lot of UFO reports came in and, and there just wasn't enough stuff to get a handle on anything. But uh, I haven't found anything that really puzzled me. So you're kind of a, well, I was going to say non-believer, but it's more uh, skeptical of the, the idea that we're being visited. There's nothing there that really excites you about that idea. That's, that's right. Yeah. Well, it's an exciting idea, but uh, 
I don't, you know, I don't think that the things that we call UFOs are really anything extraordinary. There's just a lot of stuff up there that you see. And also you have the human factor too. People see, they misinterpret, they see what they would like to see or what they think they ought to be seeing. And uh, so it's a human factor is the big, is the big thing in, about UFOs, I think. Well, let me, let me take a break here, like I promised to do just moments ago. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about uh, what it would take, what kind of a sighting you would like to see, what kind of information you'd like to see to uh, lead us into the extraterrestrial. I mean, what sort of evidence would you be looking for in that, in that respect? So you are watching a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. We'll be back right after this, so stick around. I am back with Robert Young. When we went away, uh, I was posing a question to him about what sort of evidence he would like to see. When I look at a case, I'm looking for multiple chains of evidence. I'm looking for eyewitness testimony. I'm looking for some sort of physical evidence, be it a radar track, uh, photographs, some interaction with the environment, something like that. So we have multiple cases, multiple uh, chains of, of evidence here. And I'll, I'll mention which I may have mentioned many, many times before, in 18, I think it was 1803, the French Academy of Sciences said, rocks do not fall from the sky, end of discussion. In 1804, they reversed themselves based on a scientific investigation of a meteor fall in France. And what they had was, number one was the eyewitness testimony, which is a component of understanding these things. But they also had the rocks that fell from the sky, the damage the rocks did, the fact that the rocks that they were picking up were not the kind of mineral deposits you'd expect in that area because there'd been a survey of the mineral deposits in that area the year before, and it didn't match that. So we have multiple chains of evidence leading to the idea that, well, maybe rocks do fall from the sky. And so I guess, Robert, what would you want to see in a UFO sighting that would be convincing to you? A rock that fell from the sky that wasn't a rock. <laughs> That I could, you know, yeah, I think physical evidence, there's too, so many other things would help, but uh, something physical evidence, really. Um, there's so many different things that can, can make you think that an event has occurred. You've got to have something physical to put your hand on. My biggest fear has always been that we find a piece of a flying saucer a real honest to God piece of a flying saucer. And we take it to the laboratories and they analyze it and they said, it's aluminum. Well, yeah. There's nothing to distinguish it from aluminum being made here on earth, even though it's really from a, a, another planet. Yeah, yeah, always possible. But, but you, would, you would need a, a, a piece of debris that clearly is of extraterrestrial origin. Um, uh, I would, about, yes. What about a case where you've got, say, two or three uh, wit independent witnesses who have photographed the thing from various angles so that, like your meteor train, you can get kind of a perspective on where it was, how high it was, how fast it was moving, um, how big it was, that sort of thing. Um, maybe throw in a radar track or a video as well. Would that, uh, would that be exciting for you or would you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, that would help. That would help, but still then you've got to rule out something from the earth uh, that created that track. So, but you know, all that sort of thing would help, but not eyewitness accounts just aren't gonna. gonna eyewitness help. accounts by themselves. No, they're not gonna do it. I can, I can understand that. I can understand that. Um, I'm going, to, I'm going to do the thing that I've done to poor old Robert Schaefer a couple of times <laughs> is uh, throughout the Leveland UFO case. Are you familiar with that? Which one? Leveland in 1957. I think I've 
The, ob <laughs> the object was seen in multiple locations, stalled car engines, dimmed headlights, filled radios with static, um, multiple independent witnesses around the, the um, level land area over about a two hour period. The Air Force said it was ball lightning, which is a preposterous explanation. Yeah, probably not. But you're not that familiar with the case. I read about it years ago, yeah. Uh, I don't well, think it's ball light lightning either. Uh, but. Well, clearly not ball lightning because ball lightning is usually pretty small and persists for maybe a minute and a half. Um, yeah. If, if it even exists, I think there's still some debate whether or not ball lighting even exists. Uh, but I, I guess what I'm getting at, the, the UFO interacted with the environment. There was testimony from independent witnesses about installing the car engines. Looking at it because they could think of no way that a, if you suppressed a engine, the, the electrical, the um, electronic flow in the engine with a magnetic field, that when you remove that field, the engine would restart spontaneously, which is not the case. There was only one person who said that. Everybody else said, well, they started the car themselves. So they didn't even bother looking at it in depth. But would that intrigue you enough to uh, suggest, well, maybe something different is going on there? It might, yeah. But you know, if, if you had a, a magnetic field strong enough to stop a car from starting, uh, it's gonna affect the car itself. The hood. Uh, I mean, it's going to change the magnetic mapping it, of the yeah, hood. Yeah, signature. And you can look at the signature of a hood and find the factory it was made in, and you can figure that out. There was a paper done years and years ago on that subject. But, so, well, the conduct committee also included that in there. Yeah, it, said, yeah. it said in 1967 they wouldn't be able to find the cars from Leveland. That yeah. kind of testing wasn't done. Of course, now the cars are plastic, <laughs> a lot of them. So, but, but no, I, in fact, for years I would do, I would magnetically map my car just in case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, using I, even, I even tried that. I even tried that once. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah. Who knows? Well, I guess the other question that, that kind of evolves out of level land, because we can kind of show where the law enforcement officers who are involved. Um, and I don't want to say we're threatened but uh, it was suggested to them that they not talk about this outside their little circle, that they keep, they keep the information to themselves as, they, as the Air Force or the government uh, investigated. And I don't have a real problem with that. I mean, if you're trying to conduct an investigation, the last thing you want is to have your, have your witnesses contaminated by talking to one another and everybody clued into what's going on. Yeah. So they, you would ask them to keep quiet about that. But I mean, we look at the level end case and we can see where there was an attempt by the Air Force to suppress the information. So you, I mean, would, would government, government influence like that excite you at all that, that the government had come in and said, well, you know, we don't want you talking about this, this mysterious event that took place? Well, it might, you know, depending on the factors. I mean, there's things that you don't have any business knowing, uh, but yeah, just depends. But you haven't really looked at the Eleveland case in depth, which, no, I which unfortunately I have, so I could quote yeah. times and distances and locations to you yeah. until your head blew up, <laughs> which isn't really fair to, to, to bring it up. And I just wondered if you were, and that is one case where we had multiple witnesses at multiple locations independently reporting the same thing within minutes of one another or within 30 minutes or an hour of one another, where there was no possibility they were contaminated by news reports. They we couldn't get on social media to say, I just saw the strangest thing and, uh, yeah. and that sort of thing. And the newspapers didn't get out in the, until the next day. So we had a, a body of information collected that night without the fear of contamination. Uh, what, what, what is the possibility that it was military aircraft or something? What kind of military aircraft would we be flying in 1957 that would have the capability of suppressing car engines? Don't know. But there's, no, there's nothing that, that's in the inventory now. There's nothing to suggest there was any kind of things going on. Reese Air Force Base, by the way, was within 15 minutes of the location of sightings. Reese is in Lubbock, Texas. Yeah. Lubbock, Texas is right next to, to Level Land. There were military officers involved that night as well. So um, it, it just seems to me that they would have, uh, had they had an explanation, that it would, have, it would have appeared in the Blue Book file. Because a lot of that stuff, they didn't expect it to see the light of day until 
much. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, it's just one case that seems to fit much of the multiple chains of evidence with eyewitness testimony and interaction with the environment. There's even a discussion of there was a burned area found. Unfortunately, we got that information 50 years later, so it really doesn't do us any good. Uh, so I just, I just wondered what your reaction would be to something like that, as opposed to being a debunker, just a skeptic uh, looking at this yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, it's be something to look at, you know. Uh, well, I think we've uh, about covered it. Uh, oh, I was going to mention, and I have not been, well, I did mention that, I guess, that, that uh, the book that your information about uh, Kecksburg is the UFO invasion. You're in chapter 22, Old Solved Mysteries, the Kecksburg Incident. And that's from Prometheus Books, published in 1979. And Tim Prenti's zine, Sunlight, and that's S-U-N-L-I-T-E, Sunlight, volume three, number six, for his articles on Kecksburg. And you can get his point of view. Uh, for those of you interested, the other point of view, of course, there is uh, Stan Gordon's website and with just type Stan Gordon into your search engine, you'll get a lot of information from his point of view. And Leslie Keene, I think, talks about it in her book about uh, uh, UFOs and that sort of thing. So there's, the, you can get a good um, perspective, I guess, on both sides of that. Thank you so much for taking your time, Robert. Appreciate you hanging around. And, yeah, I enjoyed uh, it. In. We'll have to do it again. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I did want to say before we go away here that uh, my book UFOs in the Deep State was published not all that long ago. We're getting some good reviews on it. And I think the important point is the Deep State has uh, entered the uh, mainstream media recently talking about it. Now they're not talking about UFOs in the Deep State. They're talking about what is the Deep State and how is it influencing the news. And of course, in UFOs in the deep state, I'm talking about UF, uh, the deep state and how it influences the investigation or influenced the investigation of UFOs. But there's also a brief history of what the deep state was, what this deep state is. And, and, and this is the idea that, yes, we have elected officials. We have an executive branch of elected officials. We have a legislative branch of elected officials. But the members of the deep state, and while those people elected can be members of the deep state, it is really the bureaucracy that survives from administration to administration that kind of controls this stuff. And you take a look at who is now in the Biden administration, you see the same names appearing in the Obama administration and some of them even in the Trump administration. Or you go back far enough, you can see them in the Clinton administration and the George W. Bush administrations. These people have been around forever. They're in the highest levels of the bureaucracy in the State Department, the Department of Defense. And you have to remember the Department of Defense is controlled by the civilian side of the house. Um, so you can see that there's sort of a, a, a possibility of this deep state kind of controlling things. And when you get down to the bottom of what would be the purpose of them controlling the UFO information and it's merely to retain power, everything is about retaining power. And that's where we look at it in the um, in the deep the deep state. There, uh, the book is available at Amazon.com. Of course, you can take a look. If you've liked the book, give us a nice rating. If you don't like the book, give us a bad rating. But uh, take a look at the book. I think you'll find some things that are interesting to you there. I also wanted to mention that. Um, Another interesting case that I didn't talk to Bob about would be the Socorro case, Lonnie Zamora, 1964. And, and as always, I've done a book about that. I, I begin to think in the book books in my my um, my, my city trilogy with uh, Level Land with Socorro now and, and Roswell. But taking a look at all of that stuff uh, gives you an idea of some of the things that have gone on in the background of the UFO research. I think it's important to take a look at that. Was Lonnie Zamora forced to keep information secret? Well, yeah, they told him not to reveal that he had seen the little, seen the creatures, but that was to protect him from ridicule, which didn't work because the information got out. But also they, they didn't want him to reveal what the symbol on the side of the craft looked like and they wanted to do that so that if others came forward and said, well, I saw the same thing, if they couldn't reproduce the symbol the way Lonnie Zamora had seen it, then they would know that 
their sighting was probably less than, than accurate. So in looking at all these books, writing these books, what I try to do is look at both sides of the coin and point out these things rather than cherry pick the information to lead into one direction. I try to look at both sides of it and provide enough information so the reader can form his or her own opinion about exactly what happened in those cases. Next week, I'm gonna be joined by Jennifer Stein. We're gonna be talking about the Travis Walton abduction once again. She has done a law a documentary a number of years ago called Travis about the case. She's done extensive research into it and has talked to Travis quite a bit. So I think we'll get a little bit of a different perspective, if you will, from her uh, on, on this case from, from what Mike uh, Rogers had said to us a couple of weeks ago. So that'll be next week. You have been watching A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, and I'll be back in 167 hours with more incredible information. So thanks for tuning in. <laughs>